We'll continue with the worship. We're reading the book of Acts right now, and we're going through it relatively, basically chapter by chapter. And today's reading is the whole of Acts chapter 26, Paul's defense before Agrippa. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here, testifying both to small and great, saying nothing what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? 
And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, um, thanks, Ilbum, for reading that text for us today. Um, as you can tell, we are in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been going through Acts for about eight months, and we're going to f- wrap it up um, in June, and so this month. Uh, but what we have seen so far in the book of Acts is that God s- saves, he calls, and he uses this amazing person, right? The Apostle Paul to be the driving, first, uh, driving force of the early church. Paul is an amazing testimony of what God does with someone who goes all in for him. And what we have seen and what we see today in our text and the life of Paul is that he is being persecuted for his faith. He is suffering for Jesus in order that he may share and spread the beauty of his Savior. So here's what I will say very briefly. You know, um, a lot of us, we love Paul. Um, A lot of us want to be like Paul. We want his faith. Uh, We want his wisdom. We want his confidence and courage. We, We want his integrity and his godliness, right? We want his passion and his influence and his leadership. We want all of that. But the question is, are we willing to do what it takes to be like Paul. In other words, do we not just want the glory that Paul has, are we willing to also receive his sufferings? You see, the Apostle Paul did not become the most famous and influential and admired Christian because he pursued a life of comfort, right? I mean, even the secular world knows this. You can't become excellent at something, right, without sacrifice and suffering. You don't grow in your craft, in your profession without sacrifice. It's, it's not something that the Bible has created. No sacrifice, no victory. But this principle is rooted in actually divine wisdom. And I want to just take one example. Let's, let's take a look at the example of marriage and family, all right? Uh, Ephesians 5 is this beautiful passage that every Christian wedding reads and and all the husbands and the wives, they get all excited, right? Pumped up, right? Uh, This is what's supposed to define every marriage. Paul tells married couples in the church of Ephesus this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's a beautiful passage, right? Uh, Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the marriage that the church has with Jesus. Beautiful passage. Glorious. But how do you get that glory? What does it take to have that kind of glorious marriage? You got to put the work in, don't you? Husband's got to sacrifice. Husband, you have to love your wife like Jesus loves the church. You have to die to yourself. You have to be patient like Jesus is patient. You have to be humble like Jesus is humble. You have to pray for your wife like Jesus prays for the church. And then for wives, you have to respect your husband. It's a difficult thing. You have to respect an imperfect, broken sinner who is trying their best to emulate Jesus' love for you. That's tough, ain't it? You see, um, I was with my coaching group of pastors this week. As we were going around sharing our lives, one of the pastors shared how the most significant influence that he has wasn't the school he was at. It wasn't the friends he had. It wasn't how big or small his youth group was. It was the relationship of his parents. And how he believed, though they weren't perfect, they did their best. They tried. He could tell they tried to live out Ephesians 5. You know? He he would, uh, as he was sharing this, I could tell when my, my dad would make mistakes, when he would you know, do things wrong, I could, I, could, I could see my mom holding her tongue, <laughs> right? When my mom was angry at my dad, I could see my dad being patient and holding his tongue. You see, he knew as he was sharing, he said, this was their wisdom. Ephesians 5 was their wisdom. It wasn't comfort. It wasn't their opinions. It wasn't their preference. Everything flowed out of the of the gospel of Ephesians 5. Romans chapter 8 says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Imagine Imagine, you, you, know, um, uh, you know, you guys know I love sports, right? You're, you're, you're on a basketball team and you want to win the, the championship. You want that victory. You want that glory. But you say, you know what? I don't want any of the suffering. I don't want to go to practice. I don't want the coach to yell at me. I don't want to look at tape. I don't want to see what I'm doing wrong. And there it is, right? If you want to know Jesus... If you want to grow and mature as a person into the character of Jesus who is the most loving, intelligent, wise, patient, and resilient person in the entire universe, if you want to have a spiritual community, spiritual friends, if you want to have a spiritual marriage, it is unavoidable. 
you must learn how to endure suffering. You must learn how to persevere well. Friends, you have to understand that suffering is not something to be avoided. Suffering is a core principle of the Christian faith. Why is it maybe that you ask? Well, it is because Jesus suffered for you. He gave up his life for you and he died for your sins, which was excruciatingly painful. But he suffered for you because he loved you, like any of us would for those we love. And out of Jesus' suffering comes what? Glory for us. And furthermore, Jesus doesn't give up on us right now. He is still suffering for us emotionally in heaven as we still sin against him. Nevertheless, he is committed to our salvation and sanctification. Jesus is committed to his mission to make disciples despite our messiness, our sin, our pride. We wish it wasn't, but there it is. Just living in this world, you're going to experience suffering. And it would, it would not, I would not be a good pastor. I would not be a good leader if I was unable to prepare you to persevere through suffering. There are better and worse seasons, but to a great degree, life is understanding how to navigate and endure, not lose hope or get discouraged in the midst of suffering. And here's the thing. Suffering does two things. There's no neutral ground. It will either strengthen you or it will harden you. That's it. There's two options. On the one hand, if you think suffering is unnecessary and you're just trying to avoid suffering, you're going to experience it. You cannot avoid suffering. And, you, and you're just trying to prevent, prevent it and you believe suffering is just getting in the way of what you want then you're going to harden. You're going to grow cynical. You're going to despair. And if you give up, every time there is suffering, then you're never going to grow. Right? If you've ever worked out, you know, and you're trying to bench press and you want to bench press more and you stop every time because it hurts, you're never going to grow. You're never going to experience the kind of things that we see in Scripture. All this spiritual fruit, all this spiritual blessing for you, all this glory. You're never going to experience victory over your suffering. But there's good news because in your suffering, God does not leave you to your own efforts. You know? You are not alone, you are not without hope. God gives you himself. And when we accept suffering as a testing and strengthening process, you understand the necessity of it. You understand that it is purposeful, right? When Jesus suffered, it wasn't meaningless. It was tremendously purposeful, right? His suffering brought about salvation. In the same way, Jesus says, when you embrace the suffering in your life and suffering for the gospel, suffering for the gospel, spiritual living water is going to flow out of your heart. That's what he says. You're going to be a completely different person. 
That's what he says. You're gonna be a new creation. You're gonna go from an impatient person to a patient person. You're gonna go from a proud person to a gracious person. You're gonna go from a bitter person to a forgiving person. You're gonna go from a lazy person to a sacrificial person. Friends, don't you want that? Don't you want that in yourself? Don't you want that in your family? Well, it comes through suffering. Suffering. Because all of us need to grow. And this is what we see today in the life of our beloved brother, the Apostle Paul. Out of his suffering came all these churches in Corinth, right? In Ephesus, in Galatia, in Rome. Paul is being persecuted for his faith. But what I want to point out now is that there, in this passage, there is actually something more specific that Paul is getting at. Right up to now, Paul has been sharing the gospel in like public synagogues and public places to any ordinary citizen. But what Paul begins to do, starting in our chapter, he begins to purposefully put himself in situations that will draw attention from very powerful people. That's what Paul begins to do. And since our, our last sermon last week to today, Paul has been in prison. He's been charged with a number of things like insurrection, causing a riot, undermining the public peace. Uh, he didn't actually do any of these things, but the Jewish leaders were accusing him of doing this just because he was declaring that Jesus was God. And so Festus, he is the Roman governor of Judea. He oversees Judea on behalf of Rome. And Paul, he didn't believe he was getting a fair trial, so he appeals to Caesar. He says, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to the Supreme Court. So Festus now has to pass this up to Rome. And he has to write a statement now of the issues to Caesar, right? He's a governor. He knows Caesar personally. But because Festus was Roman, he didn't understand Jewish theology. He didn't understand Jewish politics. So he's out of his depth. And so he asks Agrippa. Who is Agrippa? Agrippa is the vassal king of Israel under the Roman Empire, you see? And so he invites Agrippa to come and listen to Paul to help him out. So what we have here is Paul is on trial in front of all the powerful people in the world, in front of Festus, in front of Agrippa. And in Acts 25, chapter 23, the last chapter before this, it says that there were military generals here and there were prominent men, prominent people in the city. It is a very significant moment and platform for Paul. At the end of our passage, Paul shows the goal of his speech and what is, he is really after. It's audacious, and even Agrippa is surprised when he sees this goal. What is the goal of Paul's speech? Well, we, say, we see it here in verse 28. Agrippa says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And then Paul says, short or long, not only you, but everyone here would be like me accept these chains. So Agrippa realizes what Paul is trying to do. He realizes what Paul's goal is. He's like, did you call this trial to convert me? <laughs> right? That's what he's saying. He's like, what is, th this isn't about this, this, this riot or this public, you're literally trying to convert me, the king of Judea. And Paul says, I am. <laughs> Paul's goal is persuasion. Paul is trying to use this trial as an occasion to share the gospel in order that people may come to know Jesus. In the same way, 
I'm trying to use this baptism Sunday to convert some of you, <laughs> right? And to get you to know Jesus. It's slick, right? <laughs> but there's two things that Paul tries to do here, two ways he tries to persuade. The first is a rational argument. In verse 13, Paul talks about the fact that he met Jesus Christ, he heard him, right? Jesus died for his sins. Jesus was raised from the dead. And Festus is an outsider. He's Roman. He's, he's not really paying attention to what's happened in Israel. And when he hears Paul talking about this, Festus interrupts him and he says, Paul, you are out of your mind. You've gone mad. I could tell you're brilliant, but you've lost it, right? You're a beautiful mind, right? That's what he's saying. But how Paul responds is extremely interesting. Very calmly, very rationally, he says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. And what does he say? He says, I'm speaking true and rational words. I love this because Paul doesn't point to his subjective emotions or, or opinions, you know? He doesn't say, no, Festus, you can't tell me what I'm feeling. I know this is true because I've experienced God. No, Paul doesn't go to his emotions, right? Because if someone were to ask you, if you are a Christian and you're here, if someone were to ask you, how do you know God exists? And if you say, well, I just feel it. I feel his presence. He's answered my prayers and I, I just know he's there. If you give it a couple years, your, your feelings will change. Some of those prayers won't be answered and then what happens? Will that be it? As a whole person, you have to use your mind. We are persons of heart and emotions, right? And of course, there are people around us and what they say and how credible their lives are is going to have a subjective and emotional impact on what you believe, but still you need to believe based upon factual reasons, right? So Paul goes on to say to Festus, what I'm telling you is true and logical, and then he turns to Agrippa and he says, the king knows about these things because he's been around. I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. Now, isn't it amazing how confident Paul is of the events and the life of Jesus Christ? Essentially, Paul is saying to Festus, you know, you, you never lived here. You haven't been around. But Agrippa's been around, Right? Agrippa is part of the Herodian dynasty. His family has lived in Israel for generations. Agrippa would have been about eight years old when Jesus died. So he grew up in the aftermath of this. And so Paul could assume that anyone who lived in Jerusalem for the last 20 years could not laugh at what he was saying. There was too much evidence of it. And you're saying, evidence? What are you talking about, Rich? Well, you know, in America, right, um, this country, the establishment of it is only about 250 years old. Very young, not much history. And we're very uh, far removed from the geography of the life and event of Jesus. But if you've ever been to Europe, if you've been to Italy, Spain, Greece, if you go to Turkey, the Middle East, nobody, nobody denies the historicity of Jesus Christ, right? Everything is about what happened in Jerusalem and how that event and life was taken to Europe, right? To Africa and around the world. Everything, all the monuments is about Caesar Augustus. And then you've got, you know, even stuff about Pontius Pilate. You see, they may reject Jesus. They may deny that, you know, 
um, his teachings and they may not want to follow him, but Herod Agrippa, Festus, the Areopagus in Athens, the Jerusalem temple, these have all been a part of their history for 2,000 years. Now, what is interesting is how Agrippa responds. How does Agrippa respond? He doesn't say Paul is insane. Instead, Agrippa says, in such a short time, you expect me to change my mind and become a Christian? And that is quite profound. Paul has done an amazing job of making a rational argument here for the Christian faith. Agrippa is essentially saying, like, Paul, just give me a second, dude. <laughs> like, like, you make a strong case. <laughs> you know, I can't deny any of that. If I were to deny that, like, no, like, it wouldn't make any sense. But you got to give me a second to think. And it's so interesting. Paul doesn't say this guy is out of his mind at the end. What does he say? He just says, no, this guy doesn't belong in prison. So all that to say, friends, um, if you are here and if you have any doubts of Christianity, you know, it is tempting to dismiss it, to scoff at it, maybe even hate it. But all that to say, that doesn't make it untrue. You know? Actually, Paul did not like Christianity either. Paul was very offended by Christian teaching. He was very upset that Christians were saying, you don't need a temple anymore. You don't need priests anymore. You don't need sacrifices. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is on the same level and not just other nations, but Israel, you too. Because Paul was part of the nation of Israel. He was extremely offended. It made Paul so furious that as uh, we heard in our reading that he put Christians in prison and he put them to death. I think that means he hated Christianity more than anyone here. So why did Paul become a Christian? It wasn't because he liked it all of a sudden. It was because of the evidence. He said, these things were not done in a corner. I wish it wasn't true. Because it means I'm wrong. It means that I've been going about things wrong. It means that I need to change. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that 500 people saw the risen Jesus Christ. Because before Paul became an evangelist, he was actually a very successful lawyer. He was a Pharisee. So he went around and talked to these people, interviewed them, and verified their stories. And if you know um, law, testimony is regarded as evidence. And so you see, Christianity has a lot of evidence. And whatever our feelings may be about uh, certain beliefs of the Christian faith, we still do have to look a lot at these other things that make a lot of sense. But that's not all Paul says. He doesn't make strictly a rational case. He also makes a personal case. He makes an emotional one. In verse 14, Jesus says to Paul, right, in this vision, why are you persecuting me? And that word for persecute is really attack. Why are you attacking me? And Jesus says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Uh, do you know what a goad is? Probably not, right? It's not a typo. It's not a goat, all right? A goad. Now, this is why they pay me the big bucks here, okay? <laughs> a goad <laughs> is a sharp stick that shepherds use to get sheep to go in the right direction. 
This is because the sheep are not the brightest animals. They are actually one of the most ignorant and helpless animals. Sheep walk off cliffs. They go into water themselves and drown. They even, they can't even graze on their own because they are so helpless. They get scared of non-moving plants. They get frightened so easily. Uh, I found this article by Shepherd. I'm just going to read a snippet of it to you because I'm not um, a shepherd. So I need someone, someone else's testimony here. So let me read this to you. Give you a little example of sheep. This is what this shepherd wrote. He said, This morning I saw one of my lambs caught in the fence. This is the same lamb that has been caught in the fence in the same place for the past three mornings. The last two days, it simply took me turning his head, an act he seemed incapable of, and push his head back through the fence. Somehow this morning, he managed to fit his head in a different angle, and I could not budge it loose. So finally, in desperation, I gave up, went to the barn, came back with bolt cutters, and freed him. For all of that, he simply shook his head at me and ran off. The ungrateful little booger. After this, I went on to check on the feed for the lambs. Now, there are two troughs, but for whatever dumb reason, these are my words, okay? This is the shepherd's words, okay? Just quoting him. My lambs all like to go to one trough. So every time I have to shoo them away and direct them to separate troughs so they don't knock over the one trough and spill the feed onto the ground. However, this day I was extra busy freeing this lamb caught in the fence when I went to go check in on the lambs feeding. Guess what happened? Yes, they all rest, rushed to one trough and spilt all the food onto the ground, contaminating it. And guess who gets to clean it all up? Yours truly. The only silver lining I have is that I get to tell my wife that I was right and she was wrong and that I do have to spend time directing the lambs every morning to separate troughs. I've concluded based on my years of experience that sheep are stupid. <laughs> Not just stupid, but mind-numbingly stupid. Sometimes I wonder how they manage to breathe and eat. This morning was one of those days that provide proof of their lack of intelligence. So reading that to you, then, we know that a shepherd never does anything to their sheep that isn't for their own good. And very often, the only way to get the sheep to do the right thing was to prod them with a goad, which is to incur a small amount of pain to prevent a larger amount of pain. So when Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, Paul, why are you against me? Don't you understand? I am the shepherd. You are a sheep. It is meaningless to kick against my goad. You are only hurting yourself and preventing me from helping you. You know, I feel like Jesus is saying this to me all the time. When I complain, when I get self-righteous, when I get impatient, when things are uncertain, when things don't go my way, I kick against the goads of a loving shepherd. I say, I can't trust you. I've got to take control. And I think if we were all honest with ourselves, a lot of our discontentment, 
a lot of our despair, a lot of our anger and bitterness, a lot of our conflict is because we kick against the goad of Jesus. He says, be patient. We say, nope, I'm going to raise my voice. Don't worry, it's going to work out, Jesus. <laughs> You're on the couch. Yeah, it didn't work out. Jesus says, you need to rest. You need to stop working so hard. Your body's going to break down. This is not going to be good for your emotional and spiritual health. He says, I can't take a day off. I need to work. And what happens? Unhappiness. Despair. Burnout. We go against God. God wants us to turn to him. But no, it's always our opinions, right? It's always our wisdom, our desires, our emotions. We're not wrong. It's our friends who are wrong. It's our spouse who is wrong. Our mentors are wrong. God is wrong. And so we kick against the goats. And God says, that's pointless because I'm trying to help you. But there is good news. You see, Paul, like you and me, was a very proud person. Paul, like you and me, was very self-righteous. You know what self-righteous means? That means I'm righteous and they are not. Paul thought he was so right, like you and me, when you and I are so wrong. And Paul was proud of it too. He publicly went against God and God's people. He was one of the hardest goad kickers. <laughs> but what did God do to Paul? Did God annihilate him? He could have, but he didn't. God saved and turned Paul and used Paul for his glory. God showed him grace. God forgave him. God showed Paul mercy and compassion. How did God do this, you ask? Well, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for Paul's sins, past, present, and future. Now, don't tell me you don't subjectively or emotionally want that. Now, here's where earthly shepherds and Jesus, the ultimate shepherd, part ways because it would be hard to find an earthly shepherd that would give his life for a sheep. That would seem illogical. A human life for an animal, right? A father, a husband's life for a sheep. No way, just, just get another sheep. But what did Jesus do? That is exactly what Jesus did. He gave up his life for the sheep. That was not a logical decision. That was not rational for Jesus. That was an emotional one. It was a personal one. And friends, this is where you need to encounter the gospel, not just rationally, but emotionally. Because God is not just a God of reason. He is also a God of personal intimacy. You can't just know of Jesus or things about him. You need to experience him. You need to encounter him personally, emotionally, 
spiritually. You are not just flesh and bones. You have a soul. By the power and work of the Holy Spirit, God brings about this personal experience to you because no man, no woman can control God. And even if you already are a Christian, there is a sense in which you need to be persuaded like Agrippa to the gospel again and again. Constantly and perpetually. Because even after Jesus saves us, we still struggle with sin. I forget about the gospel easily. I take it for granted. I stray. We get our heads stuck in fences over and over again. We fight each other and knock over food and things. Throughout our entire lives, we will need the grace and turning of this gospel in our hearts. Not just rationally, but spiritually, emotionally. Because you and I kick against the goats. But praise God that he is a good shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And I know that, you know, um, I knew what you were going to say to us, kind of. But I don't know if everyone knew. But nevertheless, you knew before the beginning of time who would be in this room, what you would say to them, what they would go through, and how they would receive it. Because you are the divine shepherd. You are the eternal shepherd. You are the cosmic shepherd. And you are shepherding your flock and your sheep with a goad. And this text is just a reminder that we are not the shepherds of our lives. That is a task way above any of us. You are the shepherd of our lives. And so I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit down in this room, into our hearts, into the people in this room. For only you can goad us with truth and love. Only you have the eternal empathy to bear with every single one of our sins, not just public, but private, our thoughts, past, present, and future. And at the same time, you are the only one who has enough courage to tell us the truth. You are the lion and the lamb. We thank you that you never give up on us. Not just when you save us, but even after you save us, as you sanctify us, as you are with us, when we endure suffering, as we persevere, you persevere with us, you pray for us, and you are bringing us home to glory. And this short life is just a blip, just a blip. Remind us of the greatest glory and the greatest blessing that awaits us, which is heaven. And help us to be focused on that mission 
as we live that out and share that with those we love. Because we can't bring anything. We can't bring any of this with us. The only thing we can bring with us to heaven is people. Help us to love people like you love people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.